Hi. I'm a member of Al-Anon from Encinitas, California, and my name's Heather. Um, I look around and I see so many people from my home meeting. I may, it, I think you should get a little refund or something, you know? Um, I have a daughter who unfortunately has inherited my mouth, and one time she said to me, she said, when you go to this Al-Anon stuff, she says, do they pay you to talk at these meetings? And I said, oh no, they don't pay you. And she said, that's good. <laughs> and I immediately got really defensive. And I said, what do you mean that's good? And she said, well, Mother, she said, I don't want to hurt your feelings. But she says, we hear you around here for free all the time, and you're not that good. <laughs> and so you've been warned, I guess. Um, you probably figured out by now, I want to welcome all of you to San Diego, and you probably know by now that I didn't start out here. Um, I was born and reared in Memphis, California, Memphis, California, <laughs> wishful thinking, Memphis, Tennessee, but the first time I was in California when that I can remember was when I was about four years old, and um, I vowed then that I'd never live in Memphis. I don't care what Elvis thinks about it. This is the place as far as I'm concerned. And uh, both sets of my grandparents retired to Vista, which is a little town in North San Diego County. And in the summertime, we used to come out here and um, spend the summers. And then from the very first, I absolutely loved California. And I thought, if I ever get the chance, I'm never going back to Memphis. And I got the chance, and I never have, except to visit. Um, to tell you a little bit about myself, I have to talk uh, some about my childhood. Um, my parents, there was nothing in my background that would have prepared me for um, living with an alcoholic or even being around drinking. Um, my parents were both teetotalers, and um, they met in pre-med, and they both went on to medical school. Um, my mother was at the top of the class, and my dad was struggling, I guess, to stay in the middle. So it never crossed his mind that she'd done him any favor. Uh, by marrying him, uh, it never crossed his mind that he'd done her any favors, the way I should put it. He um, had a real respect for women, and especially my mother. Um, the only thing that could really get him upset was if he thought we weren't treating mother just right, and that meant including using the right tone of voice and so on and so forth. Uh, there were three of us. I'm the oldest, and... Um, my father was an orthopedic surgeon, and he was gone a lot, uh, in fact, a lot. He went to the hospital seven days a week, and basically the rearing of the sisters was left to my mother, which was really fine with him, I think. Daddy didn't know a lot about kids. He had been an only child himself, and the only thing he knew to do was to pay the bills and tell you you were wonderful. Now, I'd settle for a man like that today. Um, He used to say to us, um, if you girls will just turn out half as well as your mother, I'll be well satisfied. Well, we haven't turned out that well, but he still was satisfied. And um, I think today, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about why he acted the way he did, and I know that a lot of it was because of his job. You know, he did have to work long hours, and in those days, um, I didn't realize he even had a day off. Uh, we never took a vacation till I was in college. And uh, it was just that that's the way it was. Doctors worked hard, and he did. Um, my mother was a real interesting person, too. She, because my, of my dad's work, uh, she never practiced medicine. She just stayed home and was a mother. 
Um, she was a very, very calm, self-contained person. And um, I told this at a meeting the other day. When I was 19, we took a trip, and we went to Europe and spent three months, and then we went to Africa. And uh, while we were there, my dad had shipped a car over there, and we were in the car, and he had stopped it and to take a picture of this huge elephant. And this elephant started charging our car. And my mother raised her voice and said, let's get out of here. And I was so shocked. I was more scared of mother raising her voice than I was the elephant, you know. And I'm 48 years old, and that's the only time I've ever heard her raise her voice, you know. Now, I wish I had that kind of record, but I don't. Some of you can attest to that. Um, but it was a very, very rarefied growing up as I look back on it. There was no fighting. There was no arguing. There was no drinking. We were reared Seventh-day Adventists, which is a study in itself. Some of you know. Um, Seventh-day Adventists don't even believe in drinking. They think drinking is... Um, at worst, a sin, and at best, a bad habit, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, uh, smoking and drinking and that kind of thing just was not done. There was one person in my family that kind of livened things up, and that was my mother's mother. Um, she used to visit us on occasion, and she was a little bitty woman with this snow-white hair and this straight back, and she had an opinion on everything. Um, Grandma hated drinking, smoking, Catholics, and Eleanor Roosevelt in that order. <laughs> And I thought she overdid it a lot, you know. Um, my best friend was Catholic, and and I was always I always wanted to be Catholic. You know, there was something about being Catholic that seemed kind of exciting to me. And um, my friend Catherine, uh, who was the girl who was my best friend, um, her parents were very religious, and in those days they would kneel around the radio to say the rosary during whatever it is you say the rosary. I don't know. But anyway, if we were on good terms, uh, I got to hold one, the rosary, you know. And she also had holy water in her bedroom. Now, when you pray and raised a Seventh-day Adventist, holy water is hot stuff, you know. I mean, that was really big. And uh, we used to go in there and dip into it and cross ourselves and stuff. And I thought, oh, I hope my mother doesn't find this out, you know. And this was really something. And... um I ran across a picture of Catherine and me the other day. Well, it's been several months ago now. Actually, it's probably been years, but anyway. She is in her little communion dress with the veil, and I'm standing behind, and I'm smiling. But you know, that picture was taken over 40 years ago, and I can remember how I felt, and that was jealous. I mean, you know, these Catholics just had it all over us. I was jealous of the rosary and the holy water, and especially this white dress and veil. You know, I thought that was just really something special. And um, my mother, I think, was a tiny bit embarrassed by her mother. She just, you know, talked up way too much for Memphis. And um, Grandma, we used to come to California, and um, people didn't express their opinions like that. Now, my dad was crazy about her. He, uh, he always liked women, and even his mother-in-law. He used to say to me, your grandma was born liberated. Well, she was, you know. We used to go around lots in taxis with her because she couldn't drive by the time we were, you know, up pretty big, and um, if the taxi driver lit up a cigarette, she started lecturing him. It was really embarrassing. And if he admitted to drinking, she just turned on. You know, she told him about cirrhosis of the liver. She told him how awful it was, and I just thought she plain overdid it. And besides that, it was embarrassing. These people were total strangers, and as far as I was concerned, they had the right to do what they wanted to do without interference from her. She, of course, didn't see it the same way. And she talked to us all the time about how awful it was to drink and how bad it was for 
your health and what it led to. And besides that, she said, don't even speak to anybody who drinks. She says, you just know they're bad news. I believed all this stuff, you know. Actually, later I believed it more. <laughs> but anyway, um, I remember thinking a lot about the whole situation and wondering how I got to be, this is in retrospect only, how I got to be the way that I turned out to be, which was making a lot of mistakes. And one was that I really did feel that my father had overdone it a lot in this building you up. Since he wasn't doing a lot else with the kids, he wasn't the kind that took you camping, that's for sure. He was the kind who told you you could be anything that you set your mind to be. He said all you had to do was work hard and everything. And he told me that what was wrong with the world, especially the United States, was that it was not run by women. He said, you know, if we had women in Washington instead of these men, he said, we would not have all this deficit financing. He says, women know better than that. And he said, I think that if the women, I'm so sorry he died before Geraldine Ferraro. He would have loved her even if she was a Democrat, you know. But anyway, he was over 70 years old one day, and he, I had him in the car with me. And we pulled up behind the car, and he said, do you see that sign around the license plate of that car? And I looked at it, and I said, yes. And he said, Look at that. He says, people are really making money off that. And the sign around the car said, the best man for the job is a woman. And he said, I've been saying that for 30 years. And he had been saying it for 30 years, and we had been believing it for 30 years. So we thought that all you had to do was work harder. If you wanted um, an A instead of a B, you just worked harder. If you were, you know, satisfied with a B instead of a C and so forth and so on. You know, it never crossed my mind that working harder wasn't going to get me into a lot of trouble later on. Um, I came to college at Loma Linda and uh, graduated from there. And um, it was in 1965. And in a, a traffic accident, um, my grandmother had been killed. And she was a pedestrian, and this car had hit her, and she'd been killed. And she'd been taken to Tri-City Hospital, and because there was no other doctor around, um, they, they just caught the nearest doctor to, pr- to pronounce her dead. And um, later on, I found out who he was, and he found out who I was. Um, and it was Chuck. We he we went to um, to the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Vista, and I was shopping one day with a friend of mine over here in Mission Valley, and um, there was all this commotion over in these racks of clothes, and I turned around and there was this woman there who was just slapping these three little kids around, and I just don't take that very well, so I went right over to tell her to stop this, and this friend of mine I was shopping with got me by the arm, and she said, don't say anything to her. She said, I know who she is. And I turned to her and said, well, if you know who she is, why don't you take charge of this thing, you know? And she said, oh, Heather, you know, you can't just be doing that. Well, you know, I thought you could. And so anyway, the two bigger ones were evidently fighting, but the one that caught my attention was this little tiny girl, and she was kind of hovered by this rack of clothes, and her eyes looked so scared, you know, because she was so frightened with all this, you know, commotion and this being slapped around. And I thought, so after we got out of the store, my friend that I was shopping with said, now, I know those people, and that's why I didn't want you to say anything. And she says, they're divorced, and she says, their father goes to our church. And I didn't want you stepping in and embarrassing me. And I said, oh, well, I'm sorry. You know, I wouldn't do that, except I was sorry I hadn't. 
And um, so the next week or two, I guess it was, I was at church and I was with my grandfather and evidently I didn't know it, but Chuck was behind and he asked this person who I'd been shopping with, he said, who is that girl with Mr. Boyd? And she says, that's her his granddaughter. And she says, is she single? She said, yes. And he said, well, I'd like to meet her. So that afternoon we'd eaten lunch at home and pretty soon Sarah came over to the house and she said, I've invited this man home for lunch and he wants to meet you. And I said, so? And she said, well, come over. I want to introduce you. And I said, no. And she said, well, what am I going to tell him? And I said, I don't know. I guess you'll just have to tell him we're not coming. And so she said, Heather, you're really embarrassing me. I said, I'm sorry. So she went over and told him I wasn't coming over. And later on that afternoon, we had gone down to the church for something, and I we were in our car. And all of a sudden, I heard this on the car window. And I rolled it down, and this great big bear of a man, he put his head in the window, and he said, my name's Chuck Lindsay. And he said, I understand that you won't walk across the street to meet me. (laughs) And I thought, isn't he, darling, a man with a sense of humor? (laughs) Now, I bet you put two and two together as to who the father was of these three darling little kids who'd been slapped around in the store, who I already felt sorry for, you know. And they looked so darling and so wistful and so lonely, you know. And let's face it, they all really needed me. Now, what more does a person in Al-Anon need to hear than that they're needed? Madonna's laughing. (laughs) But I, uh, you know, we started going together and um, everything was going along fine. Now... Chuck had been raised at Timothy Aminus, and so had I. So he knew that I wasn't interested in in getting involved with anybody who drank because he knew that drinking just wasn't a part of anything that I had ever been around. And so um, he never told me he drank. And, of course, I never asked. Later on, when I was telling this in an Al-Anon meeting, there was a little old lady that came up to me. She says, honey, she says, you make a real cake for living together. And, you know, maybe that's true. At the time, I hadn't even thought about it, to be honest with you. But anyway, I didn't know, you know, anything anything about it. I, he was a lot of fun, and we always had a good time together. And when I thought that any problems that he might have have stemmed from the fact that he was unhappy. Now, there was nobody that had ever been unhappy around me. You know, everybody had always had a good time, and they hadn't been unhappy. And so I just thought, well, this wouldn't really be any big problem. And so... um We got married, and everything was absolutely wonderful for about two weeks. (laughs) And then he came home, and he was drunk. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong, you know? And so I asked him, and he told me he was unhappy. And that made perfect sense to me, see? So immediately I thought... Well, he can't be unhappy. You know, I'll have to fix this up so that he isn't unhappy because if he's unhappy, he's going to drink and I, and that's awful and I don't know what to do. And, and I had no one to go to. I had no one to talk to. Uh, my parents were in Memphis. I don't know what I would have told them. You know, I think I was too embarrassed to tell them anything. I certainly wouldn't have gone to his parents. His mother was already telling me how lucky I was to have married this man. And so it wouldn't have done any good to talk to her. And I was just devastated. And I didn't know what to do. And so I can remember I just really cried a lot. And I and I prayed. And I thought, how what are, how's this ever going to work out? And the interesting part to me was that the kids always came to visit us every other weekend. And for like a month in the summertime. And when the kids were with us, He never drank. So it made perfect sense to me that the reason he drank was because he was separated from these darling kids, and that's why he drank. And I thought, that's the answer. And so um, 
1968, we had been married in 65 and 68, we had a little girl of our uh, of ours, and I remember being in the delivery room at Tri-City Hospital thinking he'll never drink again. He's going to be so happy with this little baby and this little life and everything's wonderful, you know. And I just really believe that. And a year later, less than a year later, uh, overnight, these three kids came to live with us. And I was really, really happy because having this baby had not solved the problem. So I was sure that the next three would solve the problem. And one day I was telling this in a meeting up in Vista, an Alan I remember who was really zealous had brought her husband to the meeting and he'd had a few to drink before he got there. And he was listening to all this and after the meeting he came up and he got real close to my face and he said, you know that part, he said, when you talk about taking custody of these three kids so that your husband will stop drinking? And I said, yes. And he said, Honey, don't ever try drinking yourself. You'd never make an alcoholic. You're too stupid. <laughs> and you know, I think the guy was right. <laughs> and um, time went on, and I just did not know what to do. I mean, now, if you can picture this, I had three kids, ages 1, 10, 11, and 12, and this guy who's drinking all the time. Not all the time. In fact, I went to a lot of lengths to... Um, to make sure that these kids had a wonderful life because that became my new obsession. They had to love their father just like I had loved my father. They had to be told how wonderful they were just as I had been told. They had to have all these good things and by and large they really did have a have a really good life because of our religion and because of everything. Chuck's drinking was really kind of under wraps and I used to make all the excuses for him. Daddy is on call. Daddy is tired. I mean even the neighborhood kids would say shh. He's been on call and is tired. You know, he'd be sleeping it off and the neighborhood kids would be keeping quiet. They even told their mothers he has to sleep a lot, you know. <laughs> the whole thing was just crazy. And, you know, I've often said I felt like a Hertz car in an Avis world. You know, here I am. I'm the stepmother and I'm the second wife. And when you're number two, you try harder, you know. So that's what I did, you know. I started trying harder. And there was nothing I wouldn't do to make sure these kids had this life that I had had and that I had to have them have. I absolutely had to. And um, we oh, we took them on trips and we did all these wonderful things with them and uh, we took them camping. We did all, we did everything with these kids. And by and large, they had a really good life. But his, his drinking was really beginning to worry me. But I never could figure out what was wrong. Uh, I didn't think he was an alcoholic because I thought to be an alcoholic, you had to be addicted to alcohol, which meant you had to drink every day or every other day or whatever. And he would go for like long periods of time without drinking. And I couldn't figure out how what was wrong I just couldn't figure out what was wrong and um, then I read a book on manic depressive illness because uh, somebody in his family had it nobody else was taking care of this so I would and I bought all the books the psychiatrist suggested she wasn't even related to me the person who was the patient but I wanted to find the answers and so I got this book and it said if there's manic depressive illness in a family look for an alcoholic because they're genetically linked and I remember sitting on the couch thinking that's what he is. He's an alcoholic. But I didn't know what to do about it, you know? And I once made a quick trip to Overeaters Anonymous. You can see that that didn't work out too well. But uh, I went one time and I bought everything they had, which included the big book of AA. And I came home and I read it. And um, I thought, hmm, since I've now figured out he was an alcoholic, I suggested to him that maybe he should try AA. I mean, I'm a helpful sort, and so um, I, I didn't know what AA was about. We, I mean, it's hard when all you've been surrounded with is teetotalers to know a lot of people in AA, but anyway, um, I knew they had enough money to publish this book, 
And I knew, and I knew that they could pay for an ad in the paper, which said, you know, if you want to drink, it's your business. But if you want help to stop drinking, that's our business. Call IA. And I had called the number, and there was a real person who answered. Of course, I hung up. What was I going to tell them, you know? But it was not an answering service. It was not an answering service. And they did not put me on hold like they once had when I dialed a prayer. And so I I said to Chuck real earnestly, I said, I wish you'd go to AA. And he said, but I don't know how to go to AA. And I said, well, here's the number. You know, I'm right there with the answers. And so he, he miracle of all miracles, he really called AA. And I was so shocked. And um, a guy told him to meet him, I guess, at some meeting. And um, he started going to AA. Now, I never asked anything about what went on at the meetings. I did offer to give him my big book, but he said he didn't want it. And I never, he never brought home any literature. He never did anything. And I was too afraid to ask what they did at AA because I was afraid I'd break the spell. I mean, and besides that, it was anonymous. I didn't even know if people went in their real clothes to AA, you know? I didn't have any idea what AA was about. And I said to Chuck one time, I said, do you ever see anybody that you know at AA? And he said, no. Well, it made perfect sense to me, you know? And so, but anyway, he wasn't drinking and I was so grateful for that. You know, I was just really grateful. And so, um, about two months after he went to AA, we um, went on this little trip up to Magic Mountain. And he ran into this classmate of his who was at the motel. And he was he was drinking. And he took me in, or had been drinking, and he introduced me to him. And God, I was just horrified because I thought this man looked so terrible. And I thought, oh dear, you know, I'm so glad Chuck is going to AA. And maybe he can help this man. And we, I ate lunch today with this man, and it was so funny when we started talking about this incident, you know, because it was so crystal clear in my mind. And Chuck called him up, and they started, you know, he talked to him about AA and so on and so forth. But anyway, about two months, I guess, or three after this happened, he said, I have to have a talk with you. And I said, okay. And he said, um, I can't go to AA anymore. And I said, why not? And he said, well, because I'm going to lose my job if I go to AA. Now, you know, I didn't think this guy had both oars in the water, but I believed every word he said. And I thought maybe there was something that said a doctor couldn't go to AA. I didn't know, you know. And if he said it, it had to be true. And so he quit going to AA. And, you know, it's so interesting. He lost his job, and it wasn't from going to AA. And now, you know, everything really did begin to go crazy in our house. He had been suspended from the hospital. In those days, and I'm talking about 1977, they didn't know really what to do. And so, um, you know, somebody suggested something else, and somebody said call so-and-so. And and he did get in touch with Paul up in... um, Orange County. And you know, I was so impressed because Paul used to call him up every morning to see how he was. And I thought, isn't that interesting that a doctor would do that? But of course, then with my subversive mind, I thought, well, maybe he doesn't have a lot else to do, you know, except call up Chuck and find out how he is. I didn't know. But I was impressed with his compassion, you know. And he went back to AA and he didn't have anything else to do because he'd been suspended and he had a lot of free time. So he started going to AA like morning, night, and noon. And during this time, uh, our kids, I, I had, um, I had covered up all this so well from them that when he started going to AA, one of them said, where's 
where's Daddy going? And I said, well, he's going to AA. And they said, for what? And I said, so that he won't drink. And they said, drink what? <laughs> and, you know, I realized how much I had lied and how much I had covered up. And my mind flashed back to the nights when the nurse would call from the hospital, you know, and he would be drunk. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to, to wake him up for anything. And the nurse would say, I'm calling to check an order. You know, could I speak to Dr. Lindsay? And I'd say, well, you can, but he's been sick. And he's just gone to sleep. But if you want me to wake him up, I will. Now, I couldn't have wakened him up with a ton of dynamite. And, of course, the nurse never called my bluff. She would say, oh, no, 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 don't wake him up. She says, I'll check the order with somebody else. And I'd say, oh, thank you so much. And, you know, I did this over and over again. And then I would tell him he was out. Well, he, you know, was. Uh, but, you know, I would just do all this crazy, you know, stuff that when I look back on, I just don't know how I had the nerve to do it because, while I was full of denial, I was also full of protection. And I can remember being afraid that he would die. You know, I was really afraid he'd die. And so I would sit up and watch him, like, all night, like, breathe and stuff. And, uh, and I'd be so worried. And I just, I, I never talked to a soul. I never told anybody. I never anything. In fact, when he was suspended from the hospital, his brother-in-law was his partner, and he didn't have any idea, you know. They were absolutely floored. His sister came over and said, why don't you divorce him? You know, which gives you an idea of what they're like. And um, <laughs> it was just real interesting. And, and I just didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do. And during all this, this terrible time when he was off work and so on and so forth, somebody said to him, I think you should, you should take your wife to Al-Anon. Tell your wife about Al-Anon. And um, so Chuck came home and he said, I... Somebody suggested that you should go to Al-Anon, and uh, I think it's a good idea. So I said, okay, and I didn't want to go to Al-Anon, but more than anything else, I did not want to look bad, and I didn't, I thought maybe somebody would be checking up on him, and I didn't want them to report that Chuck's wife wasn't cooperating. And so um, he took me to my first Al-Anon meeting, and we live in Encinitas, and the meeting was in Carlsbad, and before we got out of town, I started crying. And I don't know why I was crying, but I just start cry- I just kept on crying. And when we got to the meeting, we got inside. Now, mind you, Chuck isn't drinking. He looks just wonderful. And I am crying. And um, we got inside the meeting, and they thought I was the alcoholic. <laughs> because, you know, he looked good, and, and I was a mess. And, you know, I cried the whole meeting. And I've seen people cry in meetings. You know, people come to Al-Anon and they're disturbed and they cry. But I've never seen anybody who just keeps on crying. And that's all I did. I just cried the entire meeting. And um, at the break, all these ladies came up and they put their arm around me and they all said the same thing. They said, everything is going to be okay. And I thought, how do they know it is? And I also thought... There must be some manual that tells them that. You know, that if somebody comes to a meeting and cries, you say everything is going to be okay because that's what they all said, you know. And uh, I I never got anything out of the meeting, but afterwards there was this lady who appeared to be maybe 55, 60 years old, and she followed me out the door and she said, Honey, she said, I really would like to get your phone number. I'd like to call you up. Uh, And I said, No, no. I thought, That's all I need is one of these people checking up on me. And she said, well, would you like to go to lunch? Now, you know, I wouldn't have taken me any place except a padded cell. I certainly would not have invited me to lunch. And I said to this woman, no. And I was screaming at her. I said, I don't want to go to lunch with you. 
And later when I got home, I was absolutely horrified at how rude I had been to that woman. She didn't back off. She was so sweet. She just kept coming and said, well, come back next week. We really are interested and we want to help you and da-da-da-da-da. And that night when I was at home, I thought, you know, I have never treated anybody like that in my life. That's awful. All that woman was trying to be was kind to you, Heather, and you were yelling at her. And so I said to Chuck, now look, I'm not going back to this Al-Anon stuff, but I said, could you go back next week? I mean, he wasn't working. And could you tell that woman how sorry I am I yelled at her? And he looked at me and he said, Heather, that's weird. And I said, he says, how did I know who the woman was? I said, you, she'll know who you are. You know, I said, you know, she'll know you were with me. And I said, she'll probably come up to you. And he said, Heather, I'm just not going to do that. He says, that's just stupid. And you know, he said, I don't know what Al-Anon is, but he said, I think you ought to give it a try. And you know, I thought, maybe he's right. You know, there's nothing else to do anyway. What do I have to lose? So I went back the next week and I cried. I started crying. I got there without crying, but I started crying when I got inside. And I cried. And, you know, I cried through so many meetings. And there are people here who were at the meeting in Orange County where the doctor's wives used to meet. And I cried so much that when I finally quit crying, a lot of people did not recognize me because my face had gone down, you know. It was just so sad. You know, I just couldn't figure it all out. And um, I, all I could do was cry because everything in our house was terrible. I had always thought that if, if, he, if he just quit drinking, everything would be fine. And everything wasn't fine. In fact, he was complaining and he was not happy with things that were going on. And here I thought I had done this wonderful job. You know, I had these four kids and they were all together and three of them were in college. And, and you know, I just thought I'd really done this wonderful job. And he wasn't telling me how wonderful. I was, and I was ticked off. And so I was so hurt, and I kept going back to Al-Anon, and the main thing that bugged me was when they said, we practice the 12 steps of AA ourselves. I thought, how dare them? What kind of an outfit is this? It doesn't even have their own rules. You know, they don't even have their own steps. didn't really make a lot of sense to me, because my mind was so clouded, and so I was so fearful. And one day a lady called me on the telephone and she said, um, I met you at the Tuesday morning meeting in Carlsbad and she said, I'd like to know if you'd like to go to Laguna Beach with me to a meeting. And I said, I'd love to, which was a lie. I didn't want to go with this woman. I didn't even know who she was. But I didn't want to look bad either. So she gave me her address and I went up to her house and we started out going to this meeting. Now, this woman, immediately I took an instant dislike to. She drove me crazy. She put me in the front seat, and she had these two women, one from Lexington, Kentucky, in the back seat, and another from, I think she was from Missouri. Here they had these awful southern accents that I had left Memphis to get away from, and here we were going to Al-Anon. And it was pouring down rain, and Pat, the lady that was driving, was kind of driving with one hand, and she was motioning, you know, and I just thought, we're going to be killed. And I was glad. You know, there's something about me that thought it would be dramatic being killed on the way to Al-Anon. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, I wonder if Chuck would pay extra to put that on my tombstone, you know, killed in the line of duty, you know, that type of stuff. And a flag on my tombstone on Memorial Day. You know, there was something about there that kind of appealed to me, but, you know... We got up there, and um, it was a big meeting, and they were all sitting around, and everybody looked very, very nice. And the leader started out, and she said, um, they read all the stuff, and she said, and today we're going to talk about the slogans. And I thought, slogans? And she started talking about them, one day at a time, easy does it, and I thought, 
what in the world is this thing, you know? And um, she said, she gave a little talk, and then she said, now we're going to have coffee break. And then we'll come back, and we'll discuss the slogans further. And I thought, oh, if I had my own car, I wouldn't discuss anything. I'd split from these people, because they're not all together, you know, the slogans. And so we went, and we got our coffee, and we came back to the tables, Hello. <laughs> and when I sat down in my chair, it collapsed, and I went on the floor and under the table. <laughs> now, when you look like I do, that could be embarrassing. <laughs> Except I was too depressed to be embarrassed, you know? And nobody did anything. I think they were all horrified, you know? Nobody said anything, you know? I just sort of got up and, and found another chair that looked sturdy and sat in it. And uh, they went on with this meeting. Now, I wasn't crying, so I had made some progress. But I just thought this is the weirdest thing I have ever been connected with. They talked about easy does it and one day at a time and let go and let God. And I thought, you know, these people look good, but maybe they're not quite right. You know, maybe they're sort of mental midgets. I didn't know what was wrong, but I just couldn't imagine that full-grown women with beauty parlor hairdos would talk about easy does it. You know, there was just something incongruous to me about all this stuff. And so the meeting went on, and um, afterwards we were driving, uh, we were ending the meeting, and uh, there was an older lady who was sat way down at the end, and, and she said, uh, she put her hand up, and she said, you know, I feel compelled to say something. She said, um, I've noticed there are a lot of newcomers at this meeting today, and she said, you know, now, sometimes when people come to Al-Anon, they're so discouraged. They think that if the alcoholic quits drinking, their problems are over. And she said, I want to say that sometimes being sober can, worse, can be worse than being drunk. And I thought, how did that genius get in here? <laughs> and on the way home, I was real casual, of course. I said to Pat, who was that lady who said that about maybe sometimes sober is worse than being drunk? And she said, very chirpily, which irritated me, she said, oh, she said, that's Elsa. She said, she's been in Al-Anon 32 years. And I thought, oh, good grief. 32 years? You know, I hadn't been in three months, and I'd already figured that out, you know. I thought it took her 32 years to figure this out. I was so depressed. And I came home, and, and I went into the breakfast room, and I put my head on the table, and I just started crying. And Chuck came in and he said, what's wrong? And I said, I, I just don't want to have anything more to do with this Al-Anon. I said, I don't like it. I said, I don't like these people. I don't like Easy Does It. I don't like any of this stuff. Now, he claims I was hyperventilating, but I think that's an exaggeration. But anyway, he said, he said well, didn't anybody say anything that was any good at the meeting? And I said, no. And I said, well, wait a minute, one lady did. I said, she said that sometimes sober is worse than being drunk. And he said, well, it doesn't sound very impressive to me, but whatever. He said, who is she? I said, well, I don't know. I said, Pat said her name was Elsa. He said, well, just a minute, I'll find out all about it. So he picks up the phone, he dials Pat's number, and he says, do you have Elsa's number in Laguna Beach? And Pat said, yes, and gave it to her, and Chuck dials Laguna Beach, hands me the phone, and this man answers, Elsa's husband, Chuck. And he says, hello. And I said, hello. I said, no, this is Heather Lindsay from Encinitas. And I said, I'm calling. And I said, I wondered if your wife was home. And there was a long pause. And he said, tell me that you love me. <laughs> and I thought, they are all weird. They are all weird. But I had told him who I was. I couldn't look bad and hang up, so I said, I love you. And he said, good girl. Elsa, telephone, you know. 
hugging on the phone. What have I gotten into? So she came on to, on the phone, Elsa did, and I told her who I was. I said, I was at the meeting in Laguna Beach this morning. I said, I'm the one who collapsed the chair. She said she remembered me. And uh, I started crying, and I told her how awful everything was, and how Chuck had lost his job because of drinking, and how depressed I was, and how everything was going, you know, badly, and so on and so forth. And, and she said, honey... She said, don't you think you're taking yourself a little too seriously? And I said, but it is serious. And she said, I know it is. But she said, you know, I have a funny feeling about you. And I said, what's that? And she says, I think you used to laugh a lot. And I said, no, I never did. (laughs) And she said, I think you once had a wonderful sense of humor. And I said, no, I never did. (laughs) And she said, she talked, she was so sweet and her voice was so kind. And she talked about not taking ourselves so seriously. And she talked about giving it the light touch and not letting all this thing be so heavy. And, you know, from that day on, I decided, you know, Maybe she's right. I thought she must have learned something besides easy does it in 32 years. Maybe she's right. Maybe I am taking this thing too seriously. And you know, from that day on, I have tried really, really hard, not always with success, but not to take the whole thing so seriously because you know, I know that alcoholism is a fatal disease. So what? Being born is fatal. You know, none of us are going to get out of here alive. And you know, when I start taking myself or my problems or Chuck's problems or the kids' problems so seriously, everything is is worse. I don't feel good. They don't feel good. And it doesn't help anything anyway. And time was rocketing along anyway, and I decided not to take myself so seriously when the next bombshell dropped, and that is that the oldest daughter decided she was an alcoholic and decided she was going to go into AA. And I thought, now that is really weird. You know, we'd never seen her drinking. We didn't think, well, we didn't know if she was an alcoholic or not. But I was going to Al-Anon, and they said, it's not any of your business whether she's an alcoholic or not. And I knew it wasn't. And so she started going to AA. Now, if you don't think this wasn't crazy, she was on the phone upstairs talking to her AA friends. Chuck was on a downstairs phone talking. We couldn't even get a phone. You know, she was borrowing clothes to go to meetings, and the other daughter was letting her borrow them because she was afraid she'd drink if she didn't let her wear her favorites sweater and oh you know the whole thing was just crazy and um, she uh, had moved back home because she failed out of nursing school and uh, she decided to live at home and try to get the two-year nursing degree which she did at that point well she was also trying to go to AA and after she graduated and got her two-year degree she decided she would move to Los Angeles and go to the Pacific group of AA and that's where she met Mr. Wonderful uh, <laughs> Now, this guy was closer to my age than her age. He had been married and divorced twice. He had uh, two or three children. Well, one of them we weren't sure was really his. But uh, he was a gambler, he was an alcoholic, and he didn't like to work too well. Just what every mother prays for. And, um, you know, Chuck and I started arguing. And Chuck said, you know, she just can't marry this guy. She just absolutely can't. And, you know, I was so grateful to the people in Al-Anon because in Al-Anon I learned I wasn't responsible for what she did. And I could let her go. I could let her make her own mistakes. And, you know, I just called her one day in L.A. And I said, Vicki, I said, I really, I just want to say this once. I feel like you're making a mistake. If you're having second thoughts about getting married to this guy, I did call him by name, um, 
you know, we'd be glad to help you while you think it over. But if you decide to marry him, you know, it won't change anything between us, you know, because I'll support your decision. Oh, Chuck was just furious with me. He thought I was taking her side instead of, you know, her side instead of his. And he just was just furious and said he wasn't going to go to the wedding and all this kind of stuff. And I kept thinking, I wonder if a bride's ever been given away by a stepmother. <laughs> and I thought maybe we could start a new trend. And so uh, I said to him, I said, I'm going to go to the wedding no matter what happens. And it was right here that I got the kind of courage to do that because, you see, I was never good at dealing with anger. I just I just cry when people yell at me. I don't know how to deal with it at all. And so by now I wasn't crying. I was more saying just how I felt. And I said, for me, I have to go. I have to go even though I agree with you she's making a terrible mistake. I mean, we, we, we knew that. And uh, at the same time, she phoned me up one day and she said that she'd had her lights turned off because she hadn't paid the bill. And I said, oh. And then in the same conversation, she told me she was going to start making payments on a piano. And I thought, I wonder how she'll play in the dark. (laughs) But because Ellen and I didn't have to ask her, you know, nor did I have to get in my car and go up there and show her how, if you can't afford to pay your light bill, you can't afford a piano. And, you know, I had been a business major in college, which is is not good, because when when your minor is accounting, just by juggling a few figures, you can make everything come out okay, you know. You just find where the error is, you change it, you do it all up, draw two little lines, the liabilities, you know, balance the assets, and you're in business. I've lived like that all my life. Just find the mistake, correct it, and then go on. And now I was up against things I could not correct. So she went ahead and married him. And Chuck showed up at the wedding, and he gave her away. And uh, he, I was so amazed. I thought, it's just wonderful to let this stuff go. He just acted like he picked out this guy himself. He was shaking hands and patting backs like he was running for office. You know, glad to see you and everything. You know, everything was just wonderful. And she got married, and, and uh, it lasted about a year. And she got divorced from this guy, which was no huge surprise to anybody. And uh, she moved back home with us, which was not a surprise either. But... Um, <laughs> It was during that time that I really realized how much Al-Anon had helped as far as these kids were concerned in not having to run their lives. I mean, even today, these kids are doing some really stupid things. But um, our son, who everybody has accused of not having a lot of insight, was always crazy about flying, and he used to have model airplanes hanging from his you know, ceiling in his bedroom. And one day he and the rest of the kids were at the table talking and they said, um, if you if you had to be something other than a person, what would you like to be? And one daughter said, well, I'd like to be a German Shepherd dog. And the other one said, I'd like to be um, a bird. And Dick spoke up and he said, and mother could be a helicopter. And I said, why would I be a helicopter? And he said, because you already know how to hover. <laughs> And, you know, he's right. I did. You know, I hovered over them and protected them all. And, you know, until I got to Al-Anon, and it was such a relief to stop that hovering. You know, I was just so grateful to the program that I could stop acting in the same old ways. And um, our, our second daughter, who is now 26 years old, um, she 
was the one with the with the big scared eyes that was only four in the department store. And, you know, she's turned out to be so beautiful, and I'm so proud of her. And, I, and she needs Alan on as much as I ever did. And uh, I have lovingly suggested it to her when she says things like, Mother, I'd do anything for you. I say, there's only one thing I wish you'd do, and that's go to Alan on, because I can see a lot of the same kinds of things that I've been involved in that she is. And even she hasn't gotten the hang of it. And last week she called me up. She says, now, I don't want you to give me any of that Al-Anon stuff. She said, I'm calling for advice. And, you know, I thought, I'm so grateful that I don't have to give these kids advice, that I don't have to run their lives for them. And... um Vicky decided she wasn't an alcoholic, and, you know, I didn't have to say to her, I never thought you were anyway, you know, and I didn't have to say how stupid she'd been that she had made this mistake and married this man. And we've been through a lot of really up and down times, but I'm so grateful to the program and to everything it has given all of us. Um, you know, I'm grateful that Chuck is sober. I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, there's not a thing in my life that would be better if he, you know, if he started drinking, you know, it would just be awful. And I'm so grateful for sobriety, and I'm glad that he's in the program and that he's sober and, and that our kids are all doing okay. And uh, our younger daughter um, has a lot of lessons to learn, and uh, I decided I would let her go with her schoolwork. And she's just this little beauty who just loves to flit around, and the boys are calling, and everybody's hovering, and her schoolwork isn't doing anything. And one day her chemistry teacher called me and he said I'm calling about Heather's grades and I said yes he said what are we going to do and I said nothing he said wait a minute he said uh, aren't you Vic's mother and I said yes and he says you weren't saying nothing when I was calling you about him and I said no but I said I've changed and he said I notice <laughs> he said what do you plan for this girl to do about college I said I don't know how would you feel about our frying tacos <laughs> the guy said I didn't have that in mind. And you know, it was fine with me. And she's had to take the consequences for her own actions. And none of it's been easy for her either. And we've all had a lot of lessons to learn. Um, Chuck's been involved with a lot of people in AA. And I remember when Heather was really small, there was a guy and he called me up and he said, this guy's drunk and I'm bringing him home for dinner and to spend the night. And so I made up my mind, he may come for dinner, but he's not going to spend the night. So Chuck brings him into the house, and he said, uh, you know, I said, he's welcome to eat dinner with us. But I said, Chuck, he can't spend the night here because he's drunk. And Heather kind of overheard this, and Chuck was furious. And he says, Heather, you don't understand. This guy's a banker. I said, I don't care who he is. I don't care if he's Ronald Reagan. He's not staying here if he's drunk. And Heather overheard this, and she says, Mother, she said, you don't want that man, Daddy's friend, to stay here overnight because he's drunk. Isn't that right? And I said, that's right. And he, she said, um, and you don't want him to be upstairs because of me. Isn't that right? And I said, yes, that's part of it. And there was a long pause, and she looked at me, and I had tried to protect her a lot. And she says, Mother, do you think Jesus is happy with your attitude? And I thought, it's if I don't have enough to worry about without worrying if Jesus is happy with my attitude, you know? And I thought so much about the spiritual aspect of, of, of Al-Anon and of AA. You know, I go to church every week. Well, except when I miss, but... Um, <laughs> I never knew anything about God and how he worked, like I've seen it work in the program of Al-Anon. You know, the way we work with the new people and the way, you know, the people who come in and they're so distraught, distraught, just like I was, we put our arms around them and we encourage them and we help them and we take them to meetings and we try to give them what the program has given us. 
you know, and I'm so grateful for the fact that we do have something to give. And I had really never seen God work in church. In my church, all the people need Al-Anon, you know. I see them, they're all, you know, bickering around and everything. And I helped with a big potluck at our church. And I thought, well, these people need is Al-Anon. They learn, need to learn how to stay out of, out of each other's business and not, you know, be so involved with each other. And I was so grateful that we have the program. And I'm grateful that all of you are here. And welcome to San Diego. Thank you.